0: This is They Create Worlds, Episode 20 The Great Video Game Crash, Part 2.
1: If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look in a place where people.
0: Welcome to They Create World. I'm Jeff, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alec. Hello. Last time we started going into some of the details of the crash, and now we need to go a little bit deeper.
2: That's right. Last time we went into a lot of the immediate causes and immediate fallout of the crash, much of it brought on by activities undertaken by Atari... And now it's kind of time to explore the economics of that more and see how the market really fell apart over the next two years and then how it ultimately revived again with the help of Nintendo.
0: You know, the way you presented it really sounds like the villain is Atari because they hid all of this product that they couldn't sell and because they hid all this product and then once the cat was out of the bag, everything is saturated as a result and it's taking everyone with
2: it. Atari deserves a large portion of the blame. But you can't let the retailers off the hook that were overordering. You can't let the fly-by-night companies off the hook that basically decided that all they had to do was throw a million cartridges out into the world and they would sell. There are a lot of actors here that misbehaved. And then there was just kind of the bad luck aspects of it as well. They didn't understand console cycles then, because there really hadn't been any. We talked about this earlier too, but turns out that a video game console really needs to be replaced within five to seven years. Mm -hmm. And that really wasn't happening. Atari VCS was released in 1977. In 1982, it was still their lead product. That's exactly five years. At the exact Point that you should be running like heck away from that product they're still planning for that to be their lead product for another couple of years and really the VCS was so primitive when it came out it wasn't even that cutting edge when it was released so really it probably needed to be replaced after three years because it was
0: just so primitive and used that cheap components compared to what you could have done at the time.
2: Right, because usually when you're launching a new console now, you kind of try to balance the technology and the price. You don't just go balls to the wall and have the most impressive thing you possibly can, because that would be too expensive. But you also don't go for the cheapest you can. And Atari had a very limited strategy at the time. They were just coming out of these dedicated consoles like the Pong systems. And they basically just wanted to be able to play their existing arcade lineup on a single system because in the past they had been creating a specific console for each thing. So if you want to play Pong, you make one console. If you want to play Tank, you make another console. If you want to play Breakout, you make another console. Whole new chip fabrication, whole new expensive R&D process, etc. So the basic idea is, you know, our big games right now are, Pong's not a big game anymore, but it was one of their big games in the past. Pong's big. Tank's big. Breakout is big. They have a few driving games that are big, like Grand Track and Sprint and whatnot. Let's make a console that can basically play all of the arcade games we have right now in the home using interchangeable cartridges. They weren't really thinking about a system that would allow them to play their arcade games that were coming out two years from now. We just want something very basic that's going to be now. So it only has five sprites. They call them player missile graphics. And one of those is the ball uh, used in Pong. So it's a very small sprite. It's not very useful. So it's only got a small number of sprites. It has very low resolution backgrounds, and it has a lot of other quirks to it. It can play Pong. Pong only needs two paddles and a ball. Tank only needs two tanks and two shots because, you know, it's not going to allow you to fire more than one shot at once. Mm -hmm. And that's really all you need for that kind of game. But the video game industry moved so far beyond that so quickly. Space Invaders, dozens of objects on the screen at once. Many, 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 many. Asteroids, dozens, dozens of objects at once, all of this. And they came up with very clever tricks to be able to... Fool the system into doing that stuff. Because they had hard coded so little of it and did most of what was going on in software, they were able to fool systems. They got Space Invaders on it. Didn't look great, but they got it on. They got Pac Man on. Flickered like crazy. But they got it on. Later yeah. on, they got Ms. Pac Man on it. Didn't flicker at all because they used an 8K cartridge and did bank switching tricks. So the system really needed to be replaced after about three years. And Atari's engineers knew this. They basically started creating the successor to the VCS as soon as they launched the VCS. But what happened is the computer market started to develop. And there was very quickly a very real sense, both at Atari and elsewhere, just about everywhere, that the computer was going to be the end goal. Consoles were seen as kind of a basic introduction to... Computing in its very, very simplest form. Would that be
0: analogous to the earlier single-game unit?
2: Exactly. You went from single-game units to multiple-game units, interchangeable units. The next logical step was a computer where you could play games, but you could do so much more with it as well. For a slightly higher price, yes, but greatly increased functionality. I mean, programmable systems had a higher price than dedicated systems. Yep. So Atari turned its next-generation video game system into its home computer, the Atari 400, 800, 8-bits. And they did it kind of weirdly. First, they were like, well, we'll take the next console, we'll split it in two. We'll make a game console version and a home computer version. And that was the first split. And then they were like, well, actually, why don't we take it and do a low-end computer and a slightly higher-end computer instead. And so that's the 400 and the 800. And so they got away from doing a video game system. They did a home computer instead. And they weren't the only ones that were thinking this, because we talked about some of the early 8-bit computers. Commodore's VIC-20 was essentially a video game system as computer. It accepted cartridges. It had relatively okay graphics and sound, considering the price of the system. Primitive, but, you know, cheap. And then Texas Instruments came along and had something that was even more sophisticated, and it had a cartridge slot, and it was for playing games. Commodore 64 included a cartridge slot in addition to everything else. The computer companies were clearly going to invade the low end space, and the console companies thought they were going to get squeezed out. And it wasn't just Atari. Mattel started a development on a computer called the Aquarius. It was uh, really bad, it was awful. It was released in. 82 or 83, somewhere around there. And the joke mm-hmm. around Mattel was the uh, tagline for it should be Aquarius, the computer of the 1970s today. <laughs> it was really bad. And that distracted Mattel. It took Mattel in the wrong direction. Mattel released the Intell- Intellivision in 1979. They had a limited test market, really released it in 1980. It was supposed to come out in 1978, but they had technical difficulties and so had to delay the release. A lot of people think that they delayed the release because they were afraid of going up against Atari. That's wrong. Got it both from sources inside the company and from contemporary trade publication articles. They delayed the release because they were having technical difficulties. So it was a better system by far than the VCS, but it was still a system that by 1982 was was reaching the end of the line.
0: So no one is really putting out a console that is really much more advanced than the very late 70s maybe arguably the early 80s and you're by the time you got 82 83 84 you got stuff that is technologically inferior by the order of three to four years and you have arcade stuff that you want to bring in that is it requires more it really needs more power more capabilities and we don't have that like we do with Console that came further down with the nintendo is like yeah the nintendo has certain limitations but it could handle a lot and you could do a lot of really neat tricks with it and it had enough power and capabilities that it could accept for a good while
2: all these different kinds of games right and instead they were getting distracted by the home computer market And I say distracted because most of them didn't do a very good job at it. Atari actually had a good system when we talked about how it was a good system. Mattel had an awful system, but they were focusing on that instead of on creating a newer version of the Intellivision. Atari belatedly releases a new system. You see, after the 400-800 computers thing happened, some of the engineers still knew that they were going to need a new console eventually. And so they started working on a new one in about 1981 in the, in, in the engineering department that had some good upgrades over what came before. But then the home computer people pitched a fit. Atari was very much a group of armed camps. I told you about how many vice presidents there were. Mm-hmm. And Ray Kassar was, according to people that work there, very much the kind of manager that loved pitting people against each other. He's one of these that felt that, you know, if people are struggling against each other, then they give it their all, and the best ideas come forward, and, you know, very competitive. But that meant it was very political, and the divisions didn't always play nice with each other. Atari had a home console division and had a home computer division. Both of those knew that if one or the other, home consoles or home computers, got a significant edge over the other, that their department probably wasn't going to exist anymore. And there was a lot of belief in this time that the home computers were going to be the wave of the future. And so the home computer people had a bit of an advantage over the console people. So when the console people started creating what they hoped would be the next Atari console, the home computer people pitched a fit and saying, uh-uh-uh. We don't want anything that's going to slow these this home computer we just launched. So they managed, you know, to get the project essentially killed. And then they came in and said, rather than making... A new console use our technology to make a console, and so that's what happened instead, and that's how you got the Atari fifty two hundred, which was basically an Atari eight bit computer repackaged as a game console with controllers and whatnot instead of a keyboard. And these are the really bad controllers with the dial and the like entire keypad oh, thing. God. You see, they wanted to do something little. Uh, In television, kind of had the keypad thing going on, so they wanted to do something similar to what intellivision was doing. Because they saw the 5200 as an Intellivision killer. This was supposed to be the thing to put them back ahead of Intellivision. And so, yeah, they had the keypad, and then they had analog controls, which were very much ahead of their time. I mean, that's essentially what Nintendo then did to revolutionize the industry with the N64.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. The little joystick.
2: Two problems. First of all, for the types of games that were popular at the time, analog control was a horrible idea. For Pac-Man, you just want on-off. Pac-Man is moving or he's not moving. He's not moving at different speeds. We don't need that. More importantly, though, they did not make them self-centering. Yeah, that could be a problem. Oh, was that a problem? Floppy joysticks. Oh, dear. So the controls were a problem, and the controllers get a bad rap and are blamed a lot for the 5200's failures, and there's no doubt they played a role. But the the basic fact of the matter is, is that by this time, 1982, it would have been great to release something similar to the Atari 400 as a game console in 1979. That had been the original plan. Now they're releasing 1979 technology in 1982. They're still three years behind. Exactly. And then something happened that they never saw coming. And that was Coleco. Coleco, uh, which we have discussed a little bit in the past, was a toy company. It was kind of the first toy company to get involved in the video game industry. Before that had been television companies, electronics companies, what have you. And Coleco had done very well in the video game industry with the dedicated systems in the late 70s. But then when that market fell apart, they fully embraced the electronic handheld market and they got out of video games. They did not make the transition to the programmable systems like Atari and Magnavox did. In 1982, they finally returned, and they did so through the ColecoVision, which was the major leap forward that the video game industry really needed at that point. That was the system that theoretically should have carried the torch. It came out in 1982 at the exact right time in a console cycle. It played the current games in the arcade, with nearly complete fidelity, they went out and got big licenses, because Coleco was used to getting licenses in its toy industry. They got Donkey Kong for the system, which was one of the biggest games of 1982, came out in late 81, you know, really was big in 82. They got some Sega games for the system, like Turbo and Zaxxon, and it could play them just about as well as the they could be played in the arcade. So that's good. That's good, but then they got distracted by the whole home computer thing too. This is the other aspect of it. When people talk about the crash, they often talk about home computers and the rise of home computers being a factor in the crash. I don't really think that's true in the traditional way that people say it is, which is that home computers were stealing sales from video game systems. I really don't see any good evidence that video games were lagging in sales because of computer games, computer systems. 1982, when the VIC-20 came out, I mean, yeah, it sold 600 or 800,000 units in its first year, a million overall. Atari sold over 5 million VCS systems in 1982. That's
0: five times.
2: Yeah. The market was still increasing at that point. I don't really think that they were probably getting many sales taken away, but it's this whole convergence thing. It's this idea that everybody had that the home computer was going to take over from the video game system. And so Atari gets distracted by home computers, and instead of creating a next-generation console in 1979, it, it releases a computer. Mattel gets distracted by computers, so instead of releasing a next-generation console in 1983, they release the Aquarius. Coleco decides that it's going to get in on the computer thing, and they're going to do something that no one has ever done before, and that is for a mere $699. They were going to provide you a computer with a monitor and a printer and some of the basic software you needed, like a word processor and and the like. That was a ridiculously good price for all of that. Monitors were really expensive. Printers were ridiculously expensive. Nowadays your inkjet printer runs out of ink, it's almost just as cheap to buy a new printer with a cartridge included than it is to go out and replace your ink cartridge.
0: Well, at the prices of ink cartridge refills today, because that's actually where the profit margin is, it is cheaper to go out and buy your,
2: a new printer. <laughs> I know, but, which is nuts. But back in the day, a printer was a ridiculously expensive piece of equipment. So you're talking about a package that could be $2,000 or more reduced to 699 This was going to be the wave of the future in computing, in home computing. Problem was, it really did end up being too good to be true. They had all sorts of problems with it. They had defects in the manufacturing. They only got a fraction of their computers to market by the end of 1983. They kept having problems into 1984. It destroyed Coleco's momentum in electronics. That killed it. If they had just focused on the ColecoVision, it's not necessarily true that they would have weathered the crash because they would have still been facing a market that was overheated with competing companies' goods. So it still could be that everybody that still had their 2600 would just go and buy cheap 395 games and the no Coleco games would have sold or whatever. But if anything was going to carry the market forward, it was going to be ColecoVision. That's because the ColecoVision is actually is a
0: transitional console between the earlier systems and
2: what would eventually become the Nintendo. Right. And it was selling. It sold out its entire production run in 1982, which was only 550,000 units. But it still, you know, it sold them all. And it sold somewhere just north of a million units the next year, which was small. It was less, it was fewer units than Atari sold. But still, the trajectory was going in the right direction. Atari was losing sales, even though it was still selling more. They sold about 3 million systems. They were losing sales, whereas Coleco was gaining sales. It had the right trajectory. They had some hit arcade games to play around with. And if they had just focused on that, maybe they could have gotten through. But instead, this Atom thing killed them. It almost bankrupted the company. In their case, it wasn't a console that nearly bankrupted the company. It was a home computer. Adam nearly destroyed the company. If they hadn't discovered a little thing called Cabbage Patch, they (laughs) probably would have gone bankrupt then and there. As it was, Cabbage Patch saved the company for a couple of years and they didn't go bankrupt until the end of the 80s instead. They kept selling ColecoVision in pretty small quantities through to about the middle of 1985. And that's when they finally pulled the plug on it. 1985. They got so close Mm -hmm. to bridging the gap. They gave up right when it was time again. Yep. If they could have survived like another year, they would have been a viable competitor. Potentially. Now, the NES was a better system, not by leaps and bounds, but still by a little bit than the ColecoVision was. And, of course, Nintendo had the advantage of locking up all the Japanese companies for the games. So, Coleco might have still ended up being an also-ran like Atari and Sega ended up being. But, you know, they might have made enough money to stave off bankruptcy again. Maybe they could have occupied the niche that Atari Corporation ended up occupying with the uh, kind of low-cost alternative in the market. Because they would have had a competitive system vis-a-vis the 7800, which was kind of Atari's last desperate attempt to get back into the market. Atari had been focused on the whole home computer thing, just like everybody else. When James Morgan came in, he really focused the company back onto consoles again. He kind of saw the video game market as the market that Atari needed to be in. They didn't get out of home computers, but a lot of their... Home computer projects were kind of slashed, and he really refocused. And it was under Morgan that they were going to release their next console in 1984, because the 5200 was a complete flop. They discontinued it at the beginning of the year. It was just not working. They were going to do the 7800, which actually didn't originate at Atari. It originated at General Computer Corporation, which had been started by a bunch of MIT students and started out by making enhancement kits for arcade games. You would put their board on top of an existing game, and it might speed up the game or it might add new enemies, something to keep an old game fresh. They transitioned from that to doing Ms. Pac-Man for Bally Midway, mm-hmm. which is the most successful single arcade game of all time in the United States, 115,000 cabinets sold. And then after that, they decided they wanted to get into console hardware, so they created their own custom chips, and then they made a deal with Warner, not with Atari. With Warner, they bypassed all of the political stuff going on at Atari and pitched directly to Warner, and Warner took the project on. Hmm. And of course, they ran it through Atari, but it was a Warner project, and that became very important down the line when Jack Trammell was trying to reintroduce video games at his rebranded Atari Corporation because when he bought the Atari home computer and home console divisions didn't include the 7800 because the 7800 wasn't part of Atari. It was part of Warner, Ah. but that's a whole nother story. The important thing is they had the 7800 that they were going to run with under Morgan. They were getting ready to release it before the end of 1984. And then the company was sold to Jack Trammell and Jack couldn't release it right away because of the problem I just talked about. And so it ended up not coming out. There was a, Very small test market in 84, but it essentially didn't come out until 1986, by which time it was competing with the NES. So it was a non-factor. So these companies were so distracted by home computers that they didn't move the video game industry forward with new hardware. And that was kind of the final nail in the coffin. If the video game industry was going to emerge from the disaster of the crash of the Atari market, Mm-hmm. The only way it could have done so would have been by offering new and exciting hardware with new and exciting gameplay opportunities. And instead of doing that, everyone went and worked on home computers instead. And turned out most of them weren't any good at it. And so they ended up sinking their electronics divisions, going on a pointless sidetrack. So home computers did play a role in the crash, but I don't think they played the role that is usually attributed to them of stealing consumer sales. I would say that the. Computers stole brain
0: power and company focus so that they couldn't focus on the problem that was the industry as it was and needing to fix that. They were focused on let's develop to this new market and bring what we have over to this. It's all speculation, really. If they were to say, make that successful, where they're able to go, all right, let's make this be a true logical transition where we go from pre-state games to cartridge based games to a computer console hybrid that does a bunch of things almost like uh the Commodore sixty four it could take cartridges back in the day. I remember doing that. Yep. And just sort of continuing that kind of evolution. And then if consumers were to buy into that, it'd be really interesting to see if uh we would even have consoles today if they were able to make that kind of transition like they it seems to me, that that's sort of what they were thinking is that, okay, we're at a transition point here. We need to come out with these computer-based consoles that are more computer than console. And it just seems like none of them were able to do it really successfully. They only half did it well or had all these manufacturing problems or all these other things. Sort of like Providence was against them and it all blew up. But it makes me wonder if what if one of them was actually successful?
2: Well, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, I don't think anyone could have been successful at that time, because what basically happened is it turned out that despite all of these lofty predictions of analysts and engineers and whatnot, it turned out that a home computer of the 1983-1984 vintage really was only good for playing games. No one could find another really worthwhile use for a computer in that price range, an 8-bit computer that's going to cost under $500. They weren't really useful for many office tasks. They really didn't have any good educational uses. Housewives weren't going to balance the checkbook on them. So it turned out that a home computer was basically just a game machine. I'm oversimplifying a little, but that's you know, the basic facts on it. So, if you're going to just use your home computer for a game machine, why are you paying home computer prices? Because a home computer is more expensive than a video game system. Better sound, better graphics? Not really. I mean, obviously, in the specific case of the Commodore 64, it had better sound just because of the SID chip, but better graphics? No, because a dedicated video game system can focus its efforts into those areas that are specifically needed for video games, whereas a home computer that is supposed to be a more general-purpose system has to expand its capabilities in all directions. Commodore 64 didn't have better gameplay capability than a Nintendo entertainment system, and they came out at about the same time. Commodore 64 came out before the end of 82, and the Famicom, the original NES, came out in 1983. A Famicom is much cheaper. Doesn't need a monitor. Plug it into your television. Doesn't need a disk drive takes cartridges, doesn't need a keyboard, just use controllers, doesn't need some of the fancy components that are found within the computer. So that's really why it never could have worked in that time period. If a home computer could have been feature-rich enough to justify the higher price, then that would have absolutely been the future. But it just it didn't turn out that way.
0: You needed the equivalent of VisiCalc or some sort of really killer software to really drive the sales of the home computer and have the games also be in there. But sort of like how VisiCalc was the software for business, but you needed a really higher end system, Apple twos and such and so forth. You couldn't do that with these lower end systems and they didn't have that
2: kind of software. Exactly. Because the business standard at the time was the IBM PC. IBM was pretty much always the standard in business in the mainframe days as well. And so that was the business standard. But the IBM PC of 1982 was not in any way optimized to play games. It was not meant to be a games machine. It had a four-color CGA graphics system. Four colors. It had a one-channel, bleep, bloop, blop, beep, PC speaker. It was never going to be a game system, and it was more expensive. It took the PC becoming a more sophisticated games machine through third-party modification in the late 80s, combined with a price war amongst IBM PC clone makers that drove the price down And then the killer app for the home, which didn't end up being a killer app, but everyone thought it was going to be a killer app, multimedia, to get people interested. So then in the late 80s, early 90s, you had the combination of, well, PCs are kind of cheaper now, so I can buy one and do some of my work at home, because I have a PC in the office, I can take my work home. And multimedia is going to be the wave of the future in education, and my kid is going to need a multimedia PC to survive in the future world, so we doubly need one in the home because of multimedia. Because of Sound Blaster sound cards and VGA adapters and all of this stuff, it's finally a robust game-playing machine. So that's the point that you finally get computers in the home kind of to stay. They're not home computers. It's not considered home computer anymore. It's just you now have computers in the home, but that IBM PC is not going to replace your video game system either because, well, quite frankly, it's a pain in the ass. (laughs) You remember trying to run games on an IBM PC circa 1993 when the memory management was atrocious and you had to do all sorts of settings on your sound card, and you had to do all sorts of boot disks where you tell this to load, not that to load. Colloquially known as IRQ Hell. Exactly. And, you know, this stuff doesn't work very well. The console has the advantage of being truly plug-and-play and of remaining stable over the life of the console, computer games tend to follow Moore's Law because computers improve every 18 months. Companies assume that a serious game player is going to keep their PC updated with the latest doodads. And so the target is constantly shifting. It comes to the point that if you want to play a new computer game on the Mac settings, that not quite every 18 months for a computer game, I don't think, but at least every couple of years. You're going to have to buy new hardware and put it in the box, and then you worry about incompatibilities with this and incompatibilities with that. A console isn't going to change significantly over the course of its lifespan. So by the time you got computers in the home that could actually serve as reliable game systems plus something more that could justify their higher price, Mm -hmm. you still stuck with consoles because of ease of use and compatibility. So I really don't see an alternate future where the computer-console hybrid could have worked. But everyone thought it would, and that was a problem. It's
0: almost like they had a lot of really rose tinted glasses when they were looking at all this computer stuff, and no one actually really thought down about actual viability in the home.
2: Exactly. You know, IBM tried to get into the home with a home computer at the very end of the home computer boom, the PC jr.,
1: Mm Mm-hmm.
2: I actually remember that. And it was a disaster because in order to get the price down, they had to make compromises that made it not 100% PC compatible. Mm Mm-hmm. And it had the most ridiculous chiclet keyboard that was terrible. And so it was overpriced and underfeatured, and came out at the height of the home computer crash and it just fell apart. The next year, Tandy... Radio Shack people were like, let's take the good multimedia features of the PC Junior and put them into a standard PC architecture so that you don't have all the compatibility nonsense and release the Tandy 1000. And that was kind of the first computer that was optimized from a graphical standpoint to be a decent games machine. And it sold very well. But even then, that was never going to work take over yeah i mean well it sold well but it was never going to take over from the console space because you still have some of those problems with ease of use, use and- upgrading and i mean even today
0: just think about it how long has it taken for computer to advance to the point that you can easily sit down at your computer and play a video game I would argue that it only became really viable early mid two thousand. Steam, Before.
2: Steam, man. I mean, I'd, I'd even, I'd go mid two thousands of Steam, Steam. Now, and because and if, if only
0: because they provide the capability of ease of distribution. But let's just forget that. Let's say if you just had the Steam in a box, which they had for a brief period of time, the orange right. box. The fact that they specifically designed the system that. Try really hard to install and try and be as compatible as possible. That's helpful. Create a unified development system in order to allow for ease of updates, ease of installation, ease of configuration. You sort of had that earlier with the proliferation of DirectX sure. by Microsoft. And that really helped propel a lot of gaming on PCs. You really just didn't have that kind of infrastructure needed for it on computers until the early, mid-2000s. And before then, in the late 90s, yeah, you could have games. Alex and I played tons of games on the PC. Absolutely. But there were problems at time. I remember with uh, one of the games I used to play with one of my friends, Matt, we used to play a game called World of Zine, which (laughs) was actually two games sort of melded together, Clouds of Zine and the other name eludes me. Might and Magic 4 and 5. Might, Yeah, something like that, or Might and Magic 4 and 4.5 or something like that. No, 4 and 5. It is 4 and 5? Yeah. But I remember trying to get this thing to work, and it was a nightmare because I could make it work most of the way on my machine, but I went over to my friend's house, Matt, to play it. We installed it on there, and I had to play around with switching around IRQ stuff again in order to make the sound card and the video card play nicely together at the same time. And usually you had to, like, pop the case off, move a card around a little bit to try and play around with that. And then on top of that, you had to make a special boot disc. And a special boot disc made it so that enough quote-unquote memory was available for the game to actually
2: play. Well, and then half the time, the boot disc wouldn't work right out of the box, so to speak. And you'd have to go into auto exec bat and config sys yourself and tell it to uh, remove a few more boot up processes to actually get enough memory. Yeah, it's it's uh, untenable. And it's only because of
0: frankly the tenacity of the user wanting to play the game that you were able to even do that. I can see plenty of people who start hit the first stage of I can't even get the sound to play on this thing. I'm not going to bother with this. Return it to the store, get my money back, and I can go buy a Nintendo game for the same price. And I know I put it into the cartridge. I may have to blow on it a little bit, but at least it has a much better chance of working right out of the box.
2: Right. And the thing is, we're fairly sophisticated users. We're bad examples. So for someone like you and me, Windows 95 and DirectX solved virtually all of our problems with trying to run games, because it was the end of boot disks. It was the end of having to set individual IRQs and ports on sound cards and whatnot. And for us at that point, it became very simple. We were in the promised land. But for the general public, even that is sometimes too difficult, because you still run into lots of bugs that come from there being multiple hardware configurations. You come across people that don't really understand what components are in their computer, and so they don't read the minimum system requirements of something and don't realize that their five-year-old computer can't run the latest game. Um,
0: I point to me not doing that one time with
2: Diablo 1, and I
0: actually, (laughs) through some sort of miracle of magic, managed to make it work on a 60 megahertz 486 computer. I thought it was awesome. (laughs) The little character took five minutes to go from the central town all the way
2: to the uh, dungeon entrance, but heck, it was fun. (laughs) The average member of the public wants everything to work flawlessly out of the box every time. And so even the ease of use of a DirectX, plug-and-play, Windows environment isn't enough to entice them. That's why you needed Steam. Steam patches your game for you. Steam makes sure everything's up to date. Won't tell you if your game can if your computer can necessarily really run the game, but it takes care of so much of the process. It installs it automatically. I mean, there's some some members of the general public that don't even want to have to put in a CD-ROM or DVD and click next five times to get the game to install. I mean, it's when you're talking to a gamer audience, All of that may feel kind of nuts, but I mean, it really is true. I've worked, not with games specifically, but I've worked with the public having to help them use public access computers just to do basic things like check their email or use Microsoft Office. And it's incredible, it's astounding how much that the general public often not only doesn't understand stuff that we would consider routine, but doesn't show any interest in learning it, in acquiring that knowledge. Willful ignorance. Exactly. And that's why the console has always been great. People are always saying, this will kill console, that will kill console, the other thing will kill console. They're thinking, though, from a more advanced place, where they're like, this would work great for me, this would be very easy for me. But nothing has beat console yet for ease of use for a completely clueless consumer. And ironically, we may be getting to the point where the console kills itself in that market because consoles today have so many menus that it is starting to get to the point that you can't necessarily just insert your disk and it starts playing automatically. Mm -hmm. So consoles may eventually pass a threshold where they aren't so easy to use anymore. And I think that's probably part of the reason why mobile games and tablets are starting to... Steal some of the market, but computers are just not ever user-friendly enough for your really basic user. And your really basic user is where most of your sales come from. And that's why the console market has always been a bigger market than the home computer game market.
0: And that's why when they really focused on these computers... I mean, we're talking about now, as it actually even being viable for computers to be a good enough gaming system for the general public? We're talking about the time of the crash, 80, 81, 82, 83. The computers back then are ancient. The computers back then are primitive. When we did the hardware uh, side for Great Britain. One of the uh, things in the show notes shows kids playing around with an Apple II. And I will never forget this one girl who's, <laughs> who is going through the entire thing on how to start up the Apple II.
1: That's too many steps. Exactly.
0: And and that right there is the quintessential user that you are dealing with. If it takes more than one, maybe two steps for your. You to play the game and start it up that's too many steps, and it's too complicated and I know this boggles the mind it boggles my mind a lot and i'm I'm sure this boggles alex's mind mm-hmm. but honestly, that is the general public and I imagine a lot of the people who are listening to this are not the typical kind of people who think in that kind of terms or generally have to interact with those kind of people but we're Really, in a unique ecosystem of us just being here and understanding technology, using technology, the fact that Alex and I can even do this with technology and pretty much as our hobby and actually uh, have it work like this is
2: pretty amazing. And And it's only because we're technically savvy enough to figure this out. Right. I mean, you know, I get fed up if I have to call tech support about something and the first thing they're like is... Have you tried turning it off and turning it back on again or whatever? And it's like, well, yes, of course I have. But the sad fact is that that's the first thing they ask you because for like 70, 80, maybe even 90% of the people that call them, they haven't thought to do that. Yeah,
0: they're (laughs) that technically illiterate. And there's a reason for that. So it's kind of surprising that back then when you have these consoles, they're trying to think of this as an evolution, let's get into PCs. There's no one there who goes, this is too complicated for the average user to go
2: and mess with this thing. Why are we doing this? You know, I don't want to play pop psychologist too much, but I do think that there is probably a human tendency, nothing to do with just the video game or the computer game industry, to measure everyone else around you kind of based on you and the people you interact with regularly. You kind of start to think of them as the quote-unquote baseline for a particular activity. Mm -hmm. And so you kind of lure yourself into thinking that your audience is more sophisticated than you think. So you still try to simplify it a little bit for your audience, but you don't simplify it enough. Because, I mean, a cartridge-based computer is at least plug-and-play. I mean, the Apple was not a cartridge-based system. It's something like the Commodore 64. You know, it dumps you into BASIC mm-hmm. as its way of interacting with you. But if you put a cartridge in it, the cartridge will just load.
1: Yeah,
0: it auto-starts and yeah, brings up everything you
2: want. So, they were thinking of ways to simplify the process. It's just that you're still not simplifying it enough. I mean, it's kind of funny. On a completely unrelated note, the very first commercial arcade game, was computer space, which was based on Space War. It was a nightmare because its controls were five individual buttons, Mm -hmm. and it simulated Newtonian physics. So an object in motion remains in motion until exerted on by an outside force. So it was very hard to control your spaceship on the screen, and you had so many buttons it was hard to figure out what, what you were doing. And so they tested it. The first place they test marketed it was at a bar called the Dutch Goose near Stanford, and it was a bar that was frequented by Stanford engineering students. They'd been playing Space War for years on mainframes, and they were engineers, so they're used to complicated control systems. They got it. Mm -hmm. It did very well on test there. It didn't do well out in the arcades. It didn't do horrific but it wasn't a hit. And it was basically, it was too complicated for the public. But Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney were engineers and all the people around them were engineers and all their buddies were engineers and all the people they played space war with were engineers. And so they were kind of in this bubble where they didn't realize, they didn't stop to think that the majority of the people that were going to play their game were not engineers.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I I think that uh, the trap that they fell into, and that's that's why I think that they didn't really consider all the ramifications of rushing the computer side of things, and it may not have saved them ultimately if they continued to develop those consoles because of the oversaturation of cartridges. Let's say, for sake of argument, that ColecoVision 2 or 3 was able to come out and was able to be developed and they didn't do anything with the computer side. Right. And it went out there and it could have been a viable transition between the VCS and the uh, Nintendo, Mm -hmm. for sake of argument. Sure. Even though it's there, how are they going to sell it if you get into the same problem like we were talking about in Britain where... There, it's gonna cost me a hundred bucks to get the console, and it's gonna cost me forty bucks per cartridge. Yes, it's great and awesome, but all around in the front, I can get game for a console my kid already has, likely, or I can get cheaply, mm-hmm. and I can get him uh, for that same forty dollars. Let's say the prices is
2: it's four bucks a game. That's ten game, right? You know, I don't have any exact proof of this, but I honestly I think that part of the reason that Atari wasn't too concerned about oversaturating the market is that they really felt that video games were a fad, not everybody in the company. I'm just talking about higher level management people. Mm-hmm. Really thought video games were going to be a fad. And so their goal was just to sell as much as they could for as long as they could and make their future profits in computers. Because, you know, the Atari people were not stupid. I mean, a lot of the traditional kind of narrative about Atari is it got too marketing-focused. They brought in a bunch of marketers that didn't understand video games, didn't understand the need to upgrade the hardware, didn't understand the need to keep updating the software, et cetera, et cetera, and that because they didn't understand that they needed to replace it, it went belly up. Mm-hmm. I would argue, and I don't have any firm evidence for this, I would argue that it's just as likely that the reason that the Atari people didn't want to update the video game systems is that they just figured the home computer was going to take it over. And they misjudged. They didn't expect it to deflate as quickly as it did. I don't think they understood fully the impact of third-party software development. I think that's probably where they screwed up. I think they were probably thinking that video games would have probably run their course by about 1983 or so, and it would be time to then transition to home computers, and that it ended up that video games ended up running their course earlier than they thought because they ended up in an overheated market because of third-party software. I think that's probably where the screw-up was, rather than them not understanding that they had to update the VCS. Mm -hmm. I could be wrong about that, but... There's your conjecture that narrative makes a lot more sense to me in a way, so for whatever that's worth, the other companies I don't know, I mean Mattel, I don't really have a lot of insight into what Mattel was thinking, kind of the the leadership of Mattel Electronics in that time period haven't really given interviews. <laughs> People like Jeff Rockless, who founded the division, and Ed Krakauer, Terrence uh some of the guys at the top of Mattel Electronics have really never spoken on it. So I don't know what was going through their minds. But just from the little bit that kind of you can read between the lines from what Atari executives are, are saying, I get the sense that it was more this need to move to home computers that kind of killed what they were doing. It's really like they tried to transition way, way too soon. Exactly. But everyone was caught up in it. I mean, it's just—it was something new and something shiny. I mean, in 1982, Time magazine named the computer the man of the year. Rather than choosing a man of the year, they called it the computer. Computers were starting to infiltrate all sorts of aspects of society, and they were infiltrating pop culture. You had Tron in 1982. You had War Games in 1983— you kind of had the sense—we talked about how Britain had this sense that everyone would need to know how to program computers in the future, and that computers were a vibrant new industry that could revive their economy. It's just computers were—on everybody's mind, everyone was obsessed with them, and I just think they kind of lost the plot a little bit. Everyone got caught up in the hysteria, pretty much. Exactly. And that's whenever there's been a bubble, going back to the uh, the great tulip bubble back in uh, Holland in like the 17th century. Whenever there's been a bubble, it's always been because something takes off unexpectedly. Everybody rushes in to fill that void. And then it turns out everyone got carried away. And then the market deflates and everybody loses their shirt. And that's basically what happened in video games, you know, and 1982, the market was estimated to be about $2.8 billion. Home video game market, hardware and software combined. That represented sales of just shy of 8 million consoles and 60 million units of software for those consoles. 1983, software sales actually go up. That's good. But only by sales volume, not by dollar volume. Because 40% of what gets sold is discounted software of this type that we've talked about. So cartridge sales increase to 75 million, but they're worth only about 1.35 billion instead of 1.5 billion like they were the year before. And console sales go way, way down. So the total market deflates just a little bit. It doesn't. Fall completely apart at this point, but the market at this point is about 1.8 billion. So it's lost half its value in one year.
0: And that's pretty significant.
2: There's some later sources that say that the market topped out at 3.2 billion in 1983. Some of the sources in the late 1980s, when they're discussing the Nintendo revival, talk about how the market went from a high of 3.2 billion on down the sources from 82 and 83 seem to be pretty consistent in saying that 83 was a decline over 82. So I don't know whenever you're dealing with analyst estimates and all of this, you know, no, nothing's ever very precise. So I don't know where that comes from. But it it looks like that the industry lost about half its value. And it lost most of that in hardware, it lost very little of it in software. Then in 1984, things get even worse because by 1984 just about everyone has given up on releasing new video game software. Mattel Electronics gets shut down. Coleco has discontinued the Atom computer. They're limping along with ColecoVision, but they don't have the financial wherewithal to get a lot of hot licenses anymore. Atari is just kind of scrambling. Magnavox is getting out. It's you know, it's it's pretty dismal and that year really sees quite a decline. 84 is when you really,
0: everyone really feels it. Exactly. 82, all the groundwork's laid. 83, we know we're heading towards the
2: bottom. We're, on, we're in free fall. And so at, at this point, the total market is worth just a little more than $800 million. Kind of closer to to nine hundred mil nine hundred million, but you're losing almost these are rounded numbers, but you're losing almost a billion in value every every year. year. That's
0: significant. Imagine that today, any industry losing a billion a year.
2: Yeah, in value, it's just it's just nuts. And of course, unit sales are are in complete free fall by this time. You're going from. You know, 6 million consoles or 5 million consoles down to uh, 3 million consoles. And you're going down to uh, from 75 million cartridges to 54 million cartridges. I mean, it's just at this point, everything's collapsing. 1985 is the absolute low point. The market is worth about 100 million. So, where did we start? 2.8 billion. 2.8 Two point eight billion
0: in eighty three. Eighty two. Eighty two. And then it falls when it hits
2: rock bottom in eighty-five, one hundred million. That's right. Because by nineteen eighty-five, there is nothing new in the channel. Nintendo does its test market late in the year in New York City, but that's that's very small. That doesn't account for much. Other than that limited test market, there is nothing new at this point. Coleco discontinues the Coleco vision in nineteen eighty-five. And, I mean, they weren't really manufacturing new ones even before that. It's just they were running through stock. Nobody is releasing new games. And they haven't been since arguably 83. Some games, yeah, there were a few games that came out in 84, but not huge numbers. And then in 85, I mean, nothing's coming out in 85. Nothing new. Right. So it's it's basically clearing out channels. and. You see, by this time, retailers don't want anything to do with video games. And we talked about this in our Nintendo episode, so we don't have to belabor the point, but video games truly were dead. Not necessarily because the public was no longer interested in video games, but because there was no retailer that was ever going to purchase video games again. Not after that kind of uncontrolled loss. Exactly. But by 1985, the channels were finally cleared out, for the most part. It took Two years to get all that excess inventory out, but at the closeout prices, $3, $2, $1, 50 cents, I don't know. They had cleared out enough inventory that at least if you brought new video games in, they wouldn't be competing with $3 games anymore. Mm-hmm. Enough time had passed because, you know, if you want to call 82 the height, and we're talking about really 86... You know, that's that's four years, so, you know, your three-year-olds in 1982 or seven years old now, your four-year-olds are eight years old, so it's it's long enough to kind of cultivate a new group of children that didn't get burned by the last crash, because they were toddlers, they weren't playing video games yet. Mm-hmm. People our age are, are a couple of years older than us, maybe, but around our age. Mm-hmm. And so you had a fresh market, you had a fresh approach, you had a fresh system in the NES, and then later on it's competitors from Sega and Atari. And so they were able to introduce video games again because it turns out that video games were still interesting to people.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah.
2: It's just that they needed a breather at that point.
0: (laughs) The retailers definitely needed a breather. The industry did. What left?
2: Right. And, you know, of course the Japanese weren't... Affected by any of this. The Japanese console market, as we talked about before, kind of ran three years behind what was going on in the United States. So dedicated consoles first became big in 75, in 76. In the US, they became big in Japan in 77, 78. Handhelds became big in the United States, 78, 79. They became big in Japan, 80, 81. Video game consoles became big in the United States in 1980. They start gaining ground, sort of, in Japan in 1982, but get really kind of big in 1983. So I guess two years behind, not three years behind. But the point is, they weren't affected by this whole crash thing because they were in a completely closed distribution network that was completely separate from what was going on in the United States, and they were being served completely by homegrown companies, Atari did release the VCS in Japan. It didn't really sell all that well. It was very expensive, and that whole Japanese resistance to buying foreign. Uh, Bandai, the toy company, brought the Intellivision in, but it never really did much. It was really the arrival, first of the Epoch uh, cassette vision, and then very soon after that, the Famicom, the Nintendo Entertainment System, that really created a Japanese market. And they actually were looking to introduced the Famicom in the United States through Atari in Mm -hmm. 1983. They were in negotiations to do that. But this was at the height of the chaos, and...
0: Nothing's going to come of that.
2: Yeah, it, it didn't work out for a variety of reasons. By 1985, Nintendo was very well established in Japan, and they were ready to try to come to the U.S. again. And they had a successful arcade... Operation already in the US. So they had a base to launch from and they had a product, and the retail channels were finally cleared out. And so we could have video games again. And obviously, there's never been anything like the great crash ever again. There have been times where the market has dipped, there's been times when the market almost crashed, but it's never been quite that bad again. I mean, I think it was a combination of kind of the bubble. -hmm. Phenomenon and having a fad with the newness of it all. So people didn't know how to manage that industry. I mean, Nintendo, as we've talked about before, really learned a lot from Atari's failings and they created a very controlled market. And you kind of needed that to start, especially after the crash. Right. But it would have been useful even if there had been that controlled market the first time around. Because when you're gardening, for instance, if you're trying to cultivate a new plant that's you know, particularly difficult to grow, you don't start by just throwing it out in your garden and letting what happens happens in regards to the elements and the critters and the soil quality and all this and that. You grow it for a while in a pot, and then once it gets big and hardy enough to survive out in the real world, you replant it out in your yard or your garden or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you kind of needed that little safe space to grow the industry in its early days, because otherwise it was just going to be boom bust. Because that's the other thing, we've talked about this before, the entire history of consumer electronics was boom bust for a decade and a half before the NES came out. It happened in desktop calculators. It happened in pocket calculators. It happened in digital watches. It happened in CB radios. New gizmo comes out. Everybody wants one. Too many people get in the market. Prices collapse. Everything gets discounted. Companies go out of business. Industry doesn't die, but it's never big and important ever again. It just becomes uh, a low key market. This had happened in every consumer electronics, so it's really not a surprise it happened in video games too. If they had been paying attention, and I don't know why they weren't paying attention to what happened to calculators, watches, and CB radios because they had a direct example of what happens when you overheat a consumer electronics market. It goes kaplooey. Kind of what Nintendo did when they came in is they stopped the market from overheating. They slowed it down. They limited the number of games that were released. They deliberately underdelivered on orders so that retailers couldn't overheat the market by ordering too much. They controlled the space completely. And while there were certainly negative effects to that, I'm sure, it gave a safe space for the industry to establish itself and made it so that later transitions, when there was more competition, wouldn't be as destructive or as disruptive. I know we talked about that earlier, but it, you really can't overstate kind of the importance of that because without that moment uh, to just build, it would have just boom busted like every consumer electronics industry before it. I mean, look at the arcade market. I mean, we said we we're going to talk about that too. Arcades, video arcade games never recovered from their own crash. That's not to say video games went away. Obviously, video games did well, and by the late 80s, were actually doing very well again.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember going to arcades as a kid.
2: But video games were never quite the same, and in the arcade, you had the same kind of overheated market develop. And we will
0: cover the arcade and some of the mythology that developed around the video game crash in the third and final installment Next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at tcwpodcast.podbean.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com Email us at tcwpodcast@gmail.com, at and follow us on Twitter At TCW Podcast Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward Found at joshwoodward.com forward slash airplane mode Used under a Creative Commons attribution license Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music Found at freemusicarchive.org Used under a Creative Commons attribution license